Welcome to the New Books Network. The word neoliberalism is often used more as an insult than a description of a set of beliefs, and people can be rather hazy about the beliefs it does refer to, although the mix generally includes free markets, privatisation and globalisation, and high levels of inequality. Pinning down exactly what neoliberalism consists of has been one of the tasks undertaken by Professor Gary Gerstel of Cambridge University, and his The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order charts how both rightists and leftists embraced neoliberal ideas, which prevailed for some three decades until they were challenged by the populist economic nationalism of Trump and his imitators. So, Professor, uh, welcome to the New Books Network and the Future Of series. Thank you. It's very good to be here with you. And I think we should just begin with your definition, since you've obviously thought about it a lot. What was your definition of neoliberalism? Well, not not far from your own, actually. Uh, neoliberalism, I think, is best understood that, as a creed that wants to unleash capitalism's power and to free markets from constraints. Uh, those who are neoliberals believe that markets left to their own devices can produce the greatest economic growth and thus the greatest economic good. It's a creed, as you suggested, that prizes the free movement of capital, goods, information, and people across borders with few limitations. And it aspires to globalize capitalism and to deregulate economies. It prizes innovation and disruption. Uh, Some who subscribe to the neoliberal creed, but by no means all, value the hybridization of cultures that comes from crossing borders. And this I call uh, cosmopolitanism, a celebration of different races, nationalities, and ethnicities mixing with each other. And I think part of the appeal of neoliberalism uh, over a long stretch of time was that it was able to tap into that kind of global way of life. Right. But presumably that aspect, for example, would be much more embraced by the leftists than the rightists. Yes, yes. And there's another, uh, I, uh, uh, neoliberalism is not just a, in my book, neoliberalism is not just a set of ideas. It becomes a, a political order, uh, which by which I mean the ability to set the terrain on which political debate takes place. And part of a political order succeeding involves uh, elaborating a vision of a good life. And what I've just described is the left-wing version of the good life, cosmopolitanism, But neoliberalism is also very compatible with uh, a far more conservative vision of the good life. And this emphasizes uh, patriarchal families, uh, fathers as breadwinners, mothers as as homemakers uh, with a good dose of religion thrown in, if if that can be possible. And this becomes important because uh, even those who embrace the neoliberal creed often worry about market excess and people giving themselves over too much to gratification, indulgence, wanting to have everything that the market promises. So there's a belief that there's need of some kind of discipline. If you're going to free a person from regulation by the state, there's an acknowledgement that someone's going to have to regulate someone. So what? Who's if the state's not going to do the regulation, then who is? And many neoliberals say individuals should, should regulate themselves. But of course, not all individuals are equal. And thus you need a strong man in a strong traditional family to enforce a kind of moral order, to discipline and prepare people for full and successful uh, lives in market societies. But given, given that the, the, the left would have a very different view 
of those issues, are they an essential part of neoliberalism? They seem to me almost to be an add-on, a different set of beliefs which you can or cannot add on to the crucial economic aspects of neoliberalism, the trade, the trading, the capitalism, the globalization of labor and so on. Well, I think part of what made neoliberalism uh, such a popular creed in, in, in so many places for as, as long as it was, is that it could bring together people from uh, different parts of the political spectrum, have them agree on the basic principles of political economy, freeing up markets, globalization, unshackled capitalism, and yet they could entertain very different views of what constituted a good life in personal terms. And the uh, to the left, cosmopolitanism was appealing. To the right, patriarchal families were uh, appealing. And I, I think it was not just an add-on. I think it was quite crucial to neoliberalism's triumph because it brought into a kind of alliance, unacknowledged, um, very different sorts of people and gave neoliberal ideas of political economy a much longer life than they otherwise would have had. If we imagine neoliberalism just being about patriarchal families or just being about cosmopolitanism, I think we would have seen much more intense dissent from the core principles of uh, neoliberal political economy a lot sooner. I think most people associate neoliberalism with great inequality, but presumably that wasn't always the idea, and and there was this view, wasn't there, that if labour was, you know, farmed out to Bangladesh, let's say, from from Western economies, that that would increase wealth in Bangladesh. That there would be a situation in which all boats were rising. Yes, uh, I think neo neoliberals always acknowledged that there would be a great deal of inequality under their system. But the release of economic energy, the release of of production, uh, the unshackling of trade, the achievement of different nations of different efficiencies of scale, produce what they produce best, bring them to the marketplace, exchange what they produce best for things they don't produce very well and import them. Uh, everything would get cheaper. Uh, everyone would live better. Uh, and as you say, all boats would rise. And this was the promise of neoliberalism that sustained it for as long as it did. And uh, it did have some um, positive effects in that way, especially if we look at the creation in the neoliberal era of middle classes in places like China, India, uh, Brazil, uh, Southeast Asia of a magnitude that had been hard to imagine before. Uh, but the idea that there would be no losers uh, uh, in the neoliberal age, that all boats would rise, I think that was always a fiction. Uh, but because of a certain healthy level of economic growth, which prevailed for uh, a significant period of time, that was hidden and camouflaged and um, it, en it enabled the fiction to survive for quite a long time. And what finally uh, makes that fiction, what finally reveals that fiction to be a fantasy is the great crash, the great recession of 2008, 2009. And the inequalities are not just, say, between the global north and the global south, the, the inequalities become manifest within, say, industrial nations of the West, within Britain, within America, within France, within Germany. And, and part of the populist outcry we've seen in those countries over the last 10 years is uh, a reflection that or, or uh, uh, an anger that uh, this kind of inequality within these nations has been had been hidden. 
and yet, whether you lived in a global district of Britain or whether you stood outside those global districts, we all know this to be true about Britain. Whether you live in the the global world of Southeast England or whether you live in the North has an enormous bearing on your life chances and opportunities and abilities. And for a long time, this was not really um, acknowledged. And after the crash of 2008, 2009, that fiction is recognized as fantasy and can no longer be sustained. But do, do you think that the, you know, let's take Clinton and Blair, do you think they knew that this was a fiction, that this inequality was bound to be a result of their policies? I mean, I think they were quite relaxed about inequality in their own countries, but they were saying that this would help global poverty, you know, it would help people in developing countries. Do you think that was a genuine belief or, or not? I think they, I, I think that they believe that genuinely and i also think that in the long term they believe that their own that everyone that all boats in their own societies would 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 rise as well and to help us understand how they could believe it since it seems uh, somewhat incredible now to help us understand that i think we have to um put ourselves back in that moment of what i call techno utopianism that characterized the 1990s uh, this is when the incredible power the revolutionary character of the internet really became manifest and people began to understand that this was a change in technology as significant as the invention of the printing press 500 years earlier. And it had a particular meaning for neoliberalism and for capitalism because the what part of what the IT revolution promised was the collection of so much data that had not been collectible before. And that promised uh, the ability to manage markets with a precision that could not previously uh, have been deployed. And what a lot of people felt, including I think Clinton and Blair in this moment of techno-utopianism, was that significant market risk that had always um, caused problems for markets. Uh, the, that risk could now be eliminated, that the knowledge would be so perfect, uh, that uh, knowledge about goods and investments and bonds and stocks would be so strong that risk could be substantially eliminated. So the kind of risks that had characterized previous periods of unleashed capitalism, booms followed by busts, great employment growth followed by terrible crashes and terrible poverty. There was the belief in this moment of techno utopianism that that was a thing of the past, that that was being left behind. And this was part of Clinton's bridge to tomorrow or the the internet highway, uh, superhighway uh, to tomorrow, this enabled them to convince themselves that the world had entered a new era where markets really could be perfected. And thus you did not need state intervention in the same way that you needed it 10, 20, 30, 40 years earlier. And if uh, the Blairs and the Clintons were thinking along those lines, were people on the right uh, thinking fine well we can you know we can allow them to do that and uh, let them sell the policy that way but we know what neoliberalism will actually do and we're quite comfortable with it yeah were they more cynical about it it depends who we think of on the right um, I, I think I think some were more cynical but others bought into the techno utopianism themselves uh, fully I think of someone like Newt Gingrich uh, who hated Clinton with every uh, bone in his body <laughs> uh, and saw Clinton as a responsible, irresponsible flower child. And he was the one standing up for good, strong, disciplined families and 
and belief in God and 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 proper and proper morals. And he was uh, very conservative uh, in 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 his cultural politics. Uh, but he shared the techno utopianism of Clinton fully. Uh, he bought into this moment as much as Clinton did. And these two men who detested each other in personal and cultural terms actually worked quite closely together to produce uh, policies that would free up the market and that would free up the internet and accelerate the birth uh, of this new world. So I, I think um, a, a lot of uh, people on the right were similarly in, enthusiastic about this moment of possibility and uh, the belief that markets had comp- conquered their demons and the IT revolution was going to eliminate risk. And this was also the moment, and this this matters a great deal, of uh, capitalism's triumph over communism, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the passing from the world of the last universal alternative to liberal capitalism. It was a moment of great triumph that quickly then translated into hubris, uh, but it was bought by a lot of people on the left and the right. Uh, Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winner, and certainly he was a major figure in the Clinton administration, a man of the left. There were leftists in the Clinton administration. And he himself, years later, reflecting back on this moment, said, how did we what happened to me? I had always been warning about the excesses of markets, the risks, the need to manage markets with with uh, state regulation. And even I, at this moment, uh, uh, got swept up into the utopianism of the moment. And I think that happened to a lot of people uh, on the right as well. So uh, I think the techno-utopianism was a shared project of left and right. You've started mentioning some historical events, some historical moments, uh, uh, and you know, describing their relationship to neoliberalism. So I'd like to take you right back uh, with that sort of approach in mind and just go before neoliberalism. So what would you say immediately preceded neoliberalism? And we're talking here, you know, UK, US, aren't we, and maybe some European countries? Yes, I, I think what preceded it was forms of social democracy in, in Britain and in, in, in Western Europe, and I would say even in the United States, having to do with the, the great settlement coming out of the disasters of the two world wars and the destruction of, of so much of Europe and a sense that if the world was to be uh, rebuilt, it had to be rebuilt uh, on principles of uh, justice and, and, and equity. And, and given the uh, catastrophic and almost unimaginable loss of life that World War II had, had, had reproduced and so many ordinary people, uh, military and civilian being killed, uh, there, there had to be a sense of, of redemption and the, and the re- reigniting of, of, of hope. Uh, and part of this was a commitment to principles of, of, of social justice. And in Britain, Churchill being turned out of office, really the moment the war was, was, was over in, in the United States. Uh, the New Deal was ascendant, uh, which in America is called liberalism, but is really a American form of social democracy that had been pioneered under Roosevelt, the idea that markets uh, could not be left to their own devices, that they had to be managed in the in the public interest, that society should have high progressive rates of uh, taxation that would redistribute uh, money from the rich to the poor, that labor should be strengthened so it could um, have, have the ability to compel capitalists and industrialists to share more of the resources than they were otherwise inclined to do. 
Uh, so there was what I call a grand class compromise um, between the rich and the poor, between capital and labor. It, it did not eliminate capitalism by any stretch of the imagination, but it we it, we might say it's it, it civilized it and it compelled capitalism capitalism to make concessions to the working class and to the poor, to establish a, a social welfare state to help the casualties of industrial capitalism. Uh, this was the grand compromise characteristic of Western Europe, um, Britain, and the United States. And it was backed up by a, 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 a tremendous fear of communism and communism's spread because the big rival to post-war capitalism was, of course, communism. The Soviet Union was an existential rival of the United States. And it seemed for a time in the 40s and 50s that the Soviet Union would carry significant parts of the world with it. Uh, China, and large parts of Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, to, to take one example. Uh, and uh, those who were in charge of economies in the West and capitalists themselves had a great fear of communism because the view of communism was that once a communist regime established itself, you could not get rid of it. This was the essence of the theory of totalitarianism. The theory subsequently that turned out to be wrong, but it was believed at the time. Well, if you could not get rid of communism, you had to take steps to avert its triumph. And one way to avert its triumph was to develop a convincing argument that ordinary men and women in the West would be better off with capitalism than with communism. And in order to make that case stick, one had a compromise. The rich had a compromise with the poor. Capitalists had a compromise with labor in ways they otherwise would not have been inclined to do. And so this fear of communism fuels what I consider to be the grand compromise of the post-war years, the glorious years from the 40s to the 1970s. And by the same token, the fall of communism and the elimination of the and the fall of the, of the Soviet Union facilitates a power, pride, ag aggressiveness on the part of capitalists, which have been harder to achieve uh, during the years, the decades of the Great Compromise. Sure, but there's, a, there's quite a gap between uh, the 70s and the, and the collapse of communism. So uh, if you look at that period where you know, what you're describing, regulation of capitalism, New Deal, welfare state, uh, and so on, when does that start disintegrating and why? And I mean, it was replaced initially, wasn't it, by not neoliberalism, but there was all the talk of monetarism. So, so can you just talk us through that phase when uh, the grand settlement starts breaking down? Well, when a political order uh, begins to break up uh, or a, a grand compromise begins to, uh, to come undone, it doesn't, doesn't happen all at once. It, it happens in, in stages. And of course, those who are proponents of the grand compromise or of the New Deal order of the older labor settlement do everything in their power to restore it to its, its older success. In terms of what uh, begins breaking it apart, uh, uh, different factors in in different countries in the United States, it was the civil rights movement and the in, the uh, older inability of the Democratic Party, which had been the force of social democracy, to really confront the serious problem of racism in American society, and that comes to the fore in the '60s. The Cold War, on the one hand, stabilized Western regimes, but on the other hand. There was always a risk of destabilization by carrying the fight against communism too far, which is what happened to the United States and Vietnam. Uh, and then uh, underneath all this, at the level of political economy, huge changes in the global economy uh, in the 
1970s and 80s. And there, there, there are two features of that, which I want to stress. One is the recovery of Germany and Japan from the ashes of World War II, and suddenly they become incredibly serious competitors of the United States. So the United States loses its industrial s- supremacy. Now, the United States had abetted the growth of these economies because it needed robust markets externally in which to sell its goods. But by the 1970s, German and Japanese products are beginning to invade America in in a very profound way. Uh, And it marks a real change in the distribution of power in the global economy. And the other big change of the 70s, of course, is the rise of the commodity producers in the global south. The exemplary case, of course, is is oil. From the 40s to the 70s, Anglo-American petroleum firms pretty much had their way with Middle Eastern oil, how much would be taken out of the ground, uh, what prices would be charged, uh, the local wishes of Saudi Arabia and other countries uh, of, uh, of Iran and Iraq were ignored um, uh, for, for the sake of the benefit of the West. Uh, and in, in the 1970s, these commodity producing nations ha- have come into their own enough so that they begin to seize control of their own resources. And in the 1970s, you get this uh, tremendous oil crisis throughout the world, OPEC deploying its power for the first time, the shutting off of the taps to Western economies. And the taps are turned on pretty quickly, but on under radically different forms of um, commodity relationships, uh, which the price of petroleum has, has skyrocketed to what relative to what it had been earlier. Uh, and this you know, this changing relationship between the global North and the global South on the one hand, and the changing relationship between the United States and its industrial competitors in the global North uh, deeply destabilizes the entire global economy and economic problems appear in the United States, Britain, Germany, France, that had not been anticipated and, and for which the existing toolkit of Keynesian policymakers is no longer sufficient. And so this is a moment when ideas confined to the margins uh, begin to leave the margins and enter the mainstream because there's a need for new ideas, fresh voices to help these economies get out of their discontent and get out of their recession and, and solve their problems. And this is the moment when monetarism comes to the fore. And it's also the moment when neoliberals move from the margins in, in, into the mainstream in a big way. And in the United States, they attach themselves to Ronald Reagan, who triumphs in 1980. And in, in Britain, they attach themselves to Maggie Thatcher, who triumphs for the first time in 1979. So this is a profound period of disintegration and the beginnings of a, a reform, reformed and altered political economy. Right. So you would describe, I was going to ask, you would describe Reagan and Thatcher as the first powerful neoliberals. Yes, yes. Uh, you had some experimentation earlier in uh, in Chile. Some of the neoliberal ideas of Milton Friedman and others are coming out of the University of Chicago, and Chile becomes one of their first laboratories. But it does not become a really significant force in the global economy until uh, the election of Thatcher and um Reagan, and they are the they are the architects of, and they are the political initiative. They they bring neoliberal ideas into the center of British and American politics, and Britain and America are very powerful in the world, and and, and you know their financial districts are supreme in the world, and from, and from there they begin to travel everywhere.
Now, Margaret Thatcher used to say that her, her proudest achievement was, was New Labour, by which she meant Tony Blair, and that you know she had managed to change the argument so much that even her opponents adopted her ideas. And I just wondered, as you look back on it all, I mean, one of the most surprising things as you look back is that these left leaders did embrace these ideas. Did you reflect on the, the period when the, the left was adopting these neoliberal ideas? And do you, do you, as you look back on it, find it surprising? Yes, I do, uh, because I, uh, <laughs> I don't know how the listeners know how old I am, but I, <laughs> I was a grown man in the 1980s. I, li- I, I lived through all this, and I certainly saw what Reagan and Thatcher were, were representing. And at the time, I, I think I saw in the 80s and 90s, I first saw, uh, first saw uh, Clinton and Blair as, as real alternatives. But as, uh, you know, in the course of writing this book and having the benefit of looking back and developing a historical perspective, I love that comment by Margaret Thatcher. No one knows whether it's actually true because it's, 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 it's hearsay. It was <laughs> said to someone who then reported it to the press. But even if it's apocryphal, it's, it's too good not to be true, right? And I think there's truth in that statement that uh, she compelled Tony Blair to play on her terrain. And uh, I think Reagan had a similar effect on Clinton. Uh, you know, Clinton did come into office with a variety of ideas, some of them on the left. He had a grand, spectacular program for developing a public program of healthcare in the United States. And the United States had none at the time. It was all private or em- employer sponsored. It was one of the grand projects of American politics. And if it had succeeded, it, it might have led in a in a different direction than what we actually got uh, in the 1990s. But it, if the initiative was spectacular, the failure was also spectacular. And Clinton made a series of calculations after that, which in which he understood that uh, it came to understand that for his survival, for the Democratic Party's survival, he had to play on the terms that Reagan had set in the 1980s, that this was the only way for him to win re-election in 1996 and the only way for the Democratic Party to, to, to go forward. And he then becomes an enthusiast for neoliberal policies that in some way exceed the work done by Reagan himself from NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Association that he signs off on in 1994, the World Trade Organization that he signs off on in 1995. He utterly and completely deregulates the telecommunications industry and social media platforms in 1996. He deregulates the financial sector in 1999. In fact, you can make an argument, and I do in the book, that he goes further than Reagan in some respects. And it's not that he had become a deeper believer in neoliberalism. He, it was more that uh, this is what he felt the political order under which he was living was compelling him to do. And if he was to be successful politically, um, this was the settlement he had to make. Uh, and in the process, he pulls the Democratic Party into the terrain of neoliberalism, much as I think Tony Blair pulled the Labor Party onto the, ter- onto the terrain of neoliberalism as well. And this, this is what makes neoliberalism in the United States, not just a movement, but a political order when the opposition party is compelled, feels compelled to play by the term set by the more dominant party ideologically. Yeah, then you're in a new world. That's, that's right. So just your mentioning NAFTA and WTO just made me wonder, how do you see the European Union in this story? Uh, where does it stand in relation to neoliberalism? 
Well, I think there are different tendencies in, in the European Union, but it has elements that fit very comfortably within the neoliberal worldview, the commitment to free trade, the commitment to open borders, commitment to the much freer movement of capital. Someone like Helmut Kohl, who, of course, is a crucial figure in, in the reunification of Germany and in the formation of the EU, I think is a neoliberal at, at heart. I think the French left gets pulled along by a lot of neoliberal policies for which it's going to be pay a big price in the early 21st century. So I think they are implicated in this. And also uh, Frankfurt as a banking center becomes enormously important at this time alongside the city of London and, and Wall Street. Uh, and they are in constant communication. And it's a, it's a fluid international world in, 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 in which they are all living and very much building um, and contributing to a neoliberal world. I do a counterfactual experiment at the end of one of my chapters in the book. And I ask, what about if the Soviet Union had not dissolved in 1991? And what about if Gorbachev had been more like Dong in China, who said, if democracy is going to cost us, you know, communist control of the economy, then to hell with democracy, we're going to maintain communist control of the economy, even as we go into a capitalist direction. I do a counterfactual and says, what about if someone like Dong had been in power in the Soviet Union at the time and had decided to preserve the Soviet Union at all costs? And what what would have happened if Germany had not been allowed to reunify? And obviously that has enormous consequences for the creation of the EU. I think some kind of EU union might have been still still have emerged, but it would have been a smaller, weaker, less consequential in terms of world politics with only part of Germany on board. And I think we would have seen a quite different politics issuing from the 1990s and the form of politics that does issue at that time. Yeah, one of the interesting things about about your book is you do draw the economic stuff together with all this geopolitics into one story, if you like. And, and, and actually, with that in mind, let's just think about another uh, set of people we haven't really talked about because you've been discussing the politicians and I've been asking you about the politicians who who led all this but what about the corporate leaders who were making huge amounts of money at this time and the whole world of business you know the Steve Jobs the Bill Gates and the whole of corporate America how do they fit in to this story and how much are they adopting these neoliberal ideas what is their attitude are the people resisting it how, where do they come into it well, capital is never entirely unified. Now, the, the figure, and so there are fractures within capital as there are always fractures within a working class, but the, the people that you just mentioned, what is going to become the um, America's greatest industry, high tech, they are all on board with this and, and they embrace this neoliberal world. They imagine, you know, what they are, what Steve Jobs is imagining in the 1990s is the world we, we now inhabit, uh, several computers in every house, uh, everybody with an iPhone, everybody replacing their iPhone every other year, <laughs> uh, a world of complete and instantaneous uh, interconnection, and also a world in which the uh, creators, the, the creators of the hardware and software are not responsible really to any larger political force. You know, they, they are their own masters. They're not even responsible for any of the material that is put up on their internet system. This is part of the, you know, this is a crucial element of the 1996 Telecommunications Act in the United States, which frees the builders and the programmers of this IT revolution from responsibility from what's actually being said and passed online. And so they are the great enthusiasts of 
neoliberalism and and this and this market revolution and and they have a an argument that many people find compelling because the internet was so new and so revolutionary they were they were saying in effect how can and and the record of innovation coming out of silicon valley in the 1990s and early 2000s uh, was so stunning they were saying how can anyone think they can direct this from some central place this is precisely why the soviet union failed they try to direct everything from a central place you just have to release a lot of brilliant people give them venture capital let them do their thing some of their ideas are going to be crackpot but some ideas are going to be brilliant and transform the world there's no way this can be managed by a large state by a large government you just have to let a hundred flowers bloom. You let you have to let markets go their way. You you just have to let consumers decide. So um, they are completely they are completely embracing this world, and they are also embracing a cosmopolitan ideology of ideology of celebration of crossing borders, hybridities. Thomas Friedman is an enthusiast for that. The world is flat. We can go anywhere, meet anyone in the world in in, in any second. Really, th- this is a great world. On the other hand. You have real losers uh, in Britain and America. You know, manufacturing districts are being uh, eviscerated. Whole areas left outside of this IT revolution and the and the metropolitan areas where it is creating all this new economic activity. There are whole stretches of Britain and America and other industrialized countries that are being left out of this world. Uh, and the corporations that are um, involved in, in in this older manufacturing industry have tough decisions to make and are also and are also in some ways suffering a great deal steel manufacturing capacity in the united states goes way down other major industries electronics goes way down and and what these corporations these corporations either go out of business or they begin building their production facilities abroad uh, encouraged to do so by a world of free trade and, and the free movement of capital so usually corporations find ways to survive by transforming them, themselves but the workers, the, the employees they left behind usually can't go anywhere. And so tremendous suffering and despair begins to set root in many working class communities. Who had, These are people who had good jobs, secure jobs in the, in the New Deal era, the manufacturing era, and they are just hemorrhaging jobs and their communities are suffering. And uh, these are going to be some of the districts from which... Trumpism and populism and ethno-nationalism and rejection of globalization are going to emerge. Right. So you would say that the vulnerability of those working class communities and their you know, bad experience of neoliberalism, it contained the seeds of neoliberalism's destruction, basically. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. And, and, and so can you then relate all that to, to 2008? Because if you're looking at it in terms of the chronology, uh, that crash uh, was the end of neoliberalism? Is is it that clear? Because you've talked about other things like the collapse of communism, and yeah, you, know, you could talk about the failure of the project in Iraq, and you know, U.S. power uh, diminishing globally for various reasons. But is it all about that 08 crash? Well, I think the uh, America's war in Iraq uh, had catastrophic effects both on Iraq and 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 on the United States. Uh, I in my book, I. Uh, I tie the failure of reconstruction there to, to it's itself to a, 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 it becomes a failed neoliberal endeavor in the sense that George W. Bush outsources all of reconstruction to private companies, to markets, ignores the, the lessons that America had learned successfully in 
reconstructing Germany and, and Japan. So it doesn't stand apart from the neoliberal story. It's actually part of it. And it is going to, uh, and there's s- such anger emerges in America about the uh, Iraq war. It's going to begin to reflect badly on neoliberal principles and policies. Uh, but the, the, the coup de grace is the, the great recession of 2008, 2009. And, um, I, I write about the, the, 18 days in September uh, and October 2008, when Amer- top American economic policymakers think that there's a 50 to 60% chance that the entire financial system of the world is simply going to collapse. And it's an existential moment for them. And the only thing I can compare it to is the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And that one was a, a nuclear Armageddon, the other was a financial Armageddon, but uh, this world really did um, uh, stand on the edge of catastrophe. And even though catastrophe uh, on that scale was averted, the suffering was immense. And then it was compounded by uh, the decisions in the United States, and this is under the Obama administration, to put uh, the recovery and welfare of banks ahead of the recovery of individuals. And so Banks are restored to health pretty pretty quickly within a year or two. By 2011, 2012, stock markets have recovered their older value. But tens of millions of people in America have families have lost their homes and lost their jobs. And and the wealth that got wiped out, people were so heavily invested in, in real estate, you can call it a bad investment that they got snookered. But uh, enor- millions of families lost enormous amounts of wealth. And the recovery for them was much slower, uneven, and, and for many of them didn't come eight, unt- eight, ten years later. And even then it was uh, slow and, and piecemeal. And it's the, it's the anger of the, what is called in, the, in America, the disjunction between Wall Street and Main Street, and the anger at a political system that privileged the banks over ordinary people and the welfare of ordinary people. That is what convinces a lot of people that the globalized world of neoliberalism privileging free trade, free markets, free movement of capital, uh, giving privileges to those free movements rather than to the security of ordinary people. It's at that point where this begins to seem like a bankrupt ideology to an awful lot of people who happen to be voters in the various countries in which they're living. And this is what opens up space for other voices who had been on the margins to be heard and to make their bid for political power. And they're going to culminate in in England and Britain and with Brexit in 2016 in the same year, they culminate with the election of Donald Trump, um, two events, which I think in the heyday of neoliberalism in the, and when Clinton was riding high and when, and when Blair was riding high, Brexit was unimaginable. Um, and so was Trump. Uh, Trump was widely regarded, you know, he was understood to be a, a very rich man in the 1990s, but he was regarded as a fool. No one took him seriously as a politician. So you'd see Obama as the last of the neoliberals? Yeah, I do. And I, this surprised me uh, because I'd been a big fan of Obama and in an earlier work of mine, I, many of us who voted for him uh, thought of him as a transformative president in terms of race relations. That was his promise. And uh, many Americans, including myself, did not expect to see Americans elect an African-American president in their lifetime. And I, I include myself in that. And o- Obama seemed to accelerate that. And there was great, great exuberance and great hope that he uh, engendered. 
But with the distance of time and, and, and the benefit of hindsight and some historical perspective, you got me exactly right. I see him uh, n- not as the first president of moving to a new political order, but as the last neoliberal president in America. One of the interesting things that happened was that in the UK, we had Jeremy Corbyn and in the US, uh, as well as Trump, uh, the, you know, the rise of Bernie Sanders. And mm-hmm. yeah, you could say that both represented a, a similar strand of leftist politics and both failed. Uh, so why is it that Trump and Johnson prevailed and Corbyn and Sanders didn't? Oh, this is a million dollar question, right? <laughs> I should turn the question around and ask you uh, to answer it. I don't think Sanders has failed yet, and I'm not sure uh, a left labor alternative is is completely dead either. I think Corbyn, in my view, turned out to be a very flawed messenger and instrument. He didn't handle the Brexit issue at all well, and a different person in that position, I think, might have produced a, a very different outcome, and, and we might see a, a left labor coalition much more powerful today than what we actually see. Uh, in in America with Sanders, he on the one hand didn't get as far as Corbyn did. and But on the other hand, I think it's also still not a, a, a finished story because what the Biden presidency promised in its first year is a, is a coalition between the center and left of the Democratic Party of a sort that I think was much harder to achieve under Cor- Corbyn's time in office. And that was promising and and I still think might be promising in the future. The Democratic Party has been strongest in American history when it has brought the left and center of the Democratic Party into some kind of a productive dialogue and and getting left constituencies and more centrist constituencies both on board. And I think there was great promise in the first year of the Biden presidency. Uh, That has now failed for um, a variety of reasons. Um, Managing the um, coronavirus turns out to be something that no government is actually very good at. And I think also the forces of ethno-nationalism have been unleashed. And these have been profoundly appealing to a lot of working class voters. Uh, and the forces of ethno-nationalism talk about restoring Britain to its greatness, restoring America to its greatness, which also means restoring to dominance an older, white, less diverse population that was present when the working classes were doing better than they are now. I, I don't think the left has a strong enough answer right now to some of the issues that the ethno-nationalists are raising. And we we see this clearly in, in regard to uh, immigration issues and the erection of borders. And the leftist parties are deeply committed to a far more humanitarian policy and much more committed to a policy of open borders. And yet there's a, a, a recognition that for a society to um, be successful, some different kind of immigration politics might be necessary and some effort to recognize that the needs of those resident in those societies and, and, and those elsewhere may conflict. And I, I think the conservative forces, the ethno-nationalist forces in in Britain and the United States have unleashed this ethno-nationalism. And I, I don't think that the response of the left has been adequate to the challenge. And it can't simply be a reassertion of the value and worth of cosmopolitan values. Something else has to be, become part of that mix. And that something else is not yet clear enough for left politicians to act on.
but just looking at um, the future, if you like, of neoliberalism, um, would you say it's entirely gone? Or you know, I mean, I'm think I'm hearing what you say about ethno-nationalism, but the jeans I'm wearing were probably still made in Bangladesh, right? Uh, so some elements of this neoliberal structure uh, structures are in place, aren't they? So how do you see that? Well, I think uh, neoliberalism will never leave us in, entirely, uh, just as elements of the New Deal and the welfare state will never leave us in, entirely. I think what has left us is the ability of neoliberalism to be to be a political order, to order our political thinking, to constrain our sense of what our real political choices are. Uh, I think that's what's changed, and that has allowed other ideas on both the left and the right to enter political conversation and make a bid for influence and power. Also, uh, it's important to recognize that globalization doesn't just carry on forever, even when we think it will. Trade, international trade is not as high as it was before the great crash. This was true even before Ukraine. The Ukraine crisis has is compelling nations to think differently about where they get their goods from. They know that many countries and corporations are, are now thinking in different terms. They may no longer want to get your genes from where they were made. They may want to get them closer to home because maybe the U.S. will be in a war with China over Taiwan in 10 or 15 years as the West is now in war with Russia over Ukraine. And maybe those genes from China will no longer be accessible. So there's a different kind of thinking going on now about what does what needs to be manufactured closer to home and what can be manufactured further away from home. There are calculations being made that certain commodities are essential and we may need those industries as national industries. We cannot depend on the international economy. And also what the Ukraine crisis has revealed is an extraordinary degree of control on the movement of capital. Uh, we've seen this directly in the case of Russia, a degree of capital control and capital sanctions that have been unimaginable before Ukraine. And a lot of countries in the world are thinking, what does this mean for us? If these capital controls can be imposed on Ukraine, they can be imposed elsewhere in the world. And so I actually think that the Ukraine crisis is accelerating the decline of what has undergirded the neoliberalism. And we may be retreating even further than we had from the neoliberal cosmopolitan world in which we have been living during the neoliberal era. So I can't tell you where we're going. What I can tell you is that the certainties and principles that propelled the neoliberal order into existence and that sustained its power for 20 years, uh, uh, those forces and those principles are a lot weaker than they were. And uh, I think we are entering a different era uh, and uh, a different world. And whether this will be an authoritarian ethno-nationalist world of the right, we can certainly see that as a possibility, or whether progressives in the world and leftists will find a way to uh, get majorities in the various countries to elect them once again, um, I, I can't say. But uh, I, we are in a moment of disorder, chaos, uncertainty. And in, in this moment, I see us moving to a different kind of politics and a different political economy in the world. Yeah, well, it's so interesting just hearing your sort of overview of this, because if you look at it as post-war history, you know, you've described a period of, let's say, social democracy, what, 30 years or so, and then a period of neoliberalism, you just said 20 years, but you could probably say up to 08, 30 years. And yeah, on that basis, we'll have ethno-nationalism with us till, what, 20, nearly 2040? 
Yeah, I think that's that. If if ethno um, if ethno nationalism and the authoritarian variant of it succeeds in establishing itself as a political order, right? Not just as a movement, but the ability to compel all players in a political arena to abide by its principles, then yes, it has the capacity to endure for 30 or 40 years. But I have not myself, uh, but uh, ethno-nationalism, uh, I should say about ethno-nationalism, we, we all know this is a global movement uh, tr- and, they, and the ethno-nationalists recognize themselves in each other. Trump recognizes himself in Putin who recognizes himself in Orban, who recognizes himself in Erdogan, who recognizes himself in Modi, who recognizes himself in Bolsonaro. So this is a profound global movement, but it has not yet triumphed. It is not yet a political order capable of steering the world for 30 or 40 years. Uh, The response by Western nations to Ukraine has revived the idea of the West, the idea of a liberalism. Perhaps it will also revive a vibrant notion of social democracy. So I have not given up hope yet, which I think, um, I don't know where you stand politically, but I have not written off the left yet. I have not written off progressivism and I do not yet grant uh, the Putins of the world and the Trumps of the world, the triumph that they certainly are earnestly seeking. Uh, it's, we, we now know what they are seeking, but they have not triumphed yet. And they, they have to build an order before they can organize our world for a 30, 40 year period. And that has not yet happened. The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. And as always a subtitle, uh, this one is America and the World in the Free Market Era. It's published by Oxford University Press. Professor, uh, thank you so much for, you know, clarifying some of the ways to sort of look at post-war history in in geopolitics, economics, in social policy, and so on. It's actually a fascinating interview. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.